So today is, we are celebrating Palm Sunday, also known as the Triumphal Entry. All right, so that is what we are celebrating today. It is called Palm Sunday because in order to celebrate Christ's entry as king, the, uh, the crowds began taking off their cloaks and cloaks and laying them down before him. And if they didn't have cloaks, they went and cut palm branches and they laid those down before him. So that's why it's called Palm Sunday. But it's also called the triumphal entry because Jesus is presenting himself as King Jesus. Now, in order to understand this, this is, uh, this is like the culmination of three and a half years of ministry that Jesus conducted on earth. So in order to understand this, I thought what we would do today is we'd look at a little bit of Old Testament prophecy so we could understand the moment, the meaning, and the manner in which Jesus presents himself as King Jesus. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus enters Jerusalem. What's so special about this time? Jesus, you know, he was a good Jew. Good Jews were required by law to go to the temple at least twice a year. Jesus is roughly 33 at this time. So if you do the math, he's been, we know for a, that he's been at least 66 times into the temple. What's so different about this one? And because he was a good Jew, he probably was there quite a bit more. This one is different because it is where he presents himself as the king. He is presenting himself to all of Israel as King Jesus. So we want to understand that a little bit deeper, all right? So we're going to look at the manner, the moment, and the meaning behind it. And then we're going to briefly walk through the three and a half year ministry of Jesus. So we're going to do a lot in under 30 minutes. We're going to make it really quick. I'm going to fly through this. Uh, and then we will look at the day itself, all right? So, starting with the manner, uh, Zechariah 9.9 gives us the manner of the moment. So, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. All right, so we know that Zechariah is talking all about the kingship, right? The Messiah who will be king. That's what Zechariah is, is referring to, right? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. So not only is he the king, but he's a king who is offering salvation. And then he describes the manner. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he's going to be riding on a donkey. Now this is significant because a king during wartime rode on a horse. If Jesus entered riding a horse, it would show that he was preparing for war. He was preparing for battle. The second temple Jew, the Jew that was living during the time of Jesus, was oppressed by Rome. They wanted a warrior, a king who was going to overthrow Rome, who was going to wage battle against Rome. Jesus is making a statement when he presents himself, and God is making a statement when he tells us that he's going to present himself on a donkey. Kings rode on donkeys during times of peace. And what this signifies is that God was offering peace between man and God. You see, God created us and he called us good. But in our rebellion, we created enmity, we created war between us and God. 
And it wasn't just Adam and Eve, and it wasn't just Rome. Every single one of us have shaken our fist at God in rebellion at some point in our life. Every single one of us has said, forget you, God. I want to do things my way. Kids, when your parents tell you to do something and you don't obey, that is actually you shaking your fist at God saying, forget you, God. I want to do things my own way. So because of that, there is enmity, there is war between us and God. And every single one of us deserve death because of that. We deserve eternal separation between God, from God. This is God presenting Jesus and saying there can be peace had between God and man. So that's the significance of riding on a donkey. Next we'll look at Isaiah Oh, sorry. Next, we'll look at Daniel. That's where my tab is, so that's where we're going to look. Next, we're going to look at Daniel. Daniel 9, 25, and 26. And this is the moment. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It shall end, or sorry, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. All right. So this is this is outline the outlining the timing of the Messiah. Now we've talked about this as we walked through Revelation, so I'm not going to get too into this. I'm just going to say if you study this, you'll find that the Messiah was supposed to come right around that time. In fact. The, the Jews knew this. They studied this. They studied Daniel. They knew the timing of the Messiah. Ever wonder why there were so many Jews that rose up and claimed to be Messiah at this time? And why there were so many Jews looking for a Messiah at this time? It's because they knew the timing. So Daniel gives us an outline for the timing of Christ. So we know the manner that he's going to ride on a donkey, and we know the timing that it's going to be right around that time of Jesus And then we'll look at the meaning. The meaning is found in Psalm 118. 118. And we'll read starting at 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the meaning. And this is what we find them chanting at Luke. In Luke, the crowds chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. They were recognizing Jesus as King, as the Messiah. That's the meaning behind the triumphal entry. So now that we understand the manner, riding on a donkey and what that means, the, the moment that Daniel outlines the moment, and the meaning that he will be the Messiah, 
Let's take a quick look at how Jesus sets this all up during his three and a half years of ministry. So Jesus starts his ministry by going out to be baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist's whole ministry was to prepare the way of the Messiah, or prepare the way for the Messiah. So he goes out and he starts baptizing, and he's baptizing uh, a baptism of repentance to identify with the kingdom in which Jesus would be the king. So he's out there, he's baptizing, and then Jesus goes out to identify with the kingdom in which he is king. So he goes out, he gets baptized, and the Spirit falls upon him like a dove and drives him out into the wilderness. During that time in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days, and Satan tempts him. Jesus, without any help, Jesus, who was at every disadvantage, conquers. Whereas Adam and Eve, Israel, they had every advantage to them, and yet they fell. Jesus shows that he is a conquering lamb. After that, he goes out and he starts to collect disciples. And then he goes into Jerusalem and he has his first cleansing of the temple. He cleanses the temple. And this actually, so the Sadducees controlled the temple at the time. The Pharisees were the people's leaders. The Sadducees and Pharisees didn't get along. So the first cleansing of the temple, he pits the Sadducees and the Pharisees and his name becomes famous. The name of Jesus begins to spread. So Jesus' public ministry, earthly ministry, can be broken down. It's three and a half years. It can be broken down into three major sections. The first one is his public presentation. So during this time, after his baptism, he is publicly presenting himself to Israel as King Jesus, the Messiah, God come in the flesh. The majority of this time is spent in Galilee. The reason why it's spent in Galilee is because the majority of Jews were in Galilee. Uh, Jerusalem was the religious and political hub. Galilee was the economic hub. So you can kind of think of Galilee as New York and Jerusalem as D.C., right? So he goes to Galilee to present himself to the majority of Jews. He spends 18 months there. So the first few months he goes around collecting disciples, then he goes into Jerusalem, he spends a few months in Jerusalem, the next 18 months he spends in Galilee going about preaching openly, conducting or working miracles miracles openly to authenticate his claim. He's got a God-sized claim. He better have some God-sized miracles. So he's, go, he's working miracles to authenticate his claim. He's teaching openly, and he's traveling from city to city, presenting himself publicly. This ministry closes, or this time closes, with two rejections. The first rejection is by the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership accuses his miracles on Satan. So they say, the Holy Spirit that's working miracles in you, that's actually Satan's doing. And they reject Jesus' offer of king. The next rejection comes with the feeding of 5,000 found in John 6, where the people try to take him by force and force him into being the king. Now, you first might think, wait a second, how is that a rejection? They tried to take him and make him be the king. That sounds like acceptance to me. And I always like to compare it to offering my kids broccoli. Kids, how many of you love broccoli? How many of you are like, just give me more broccoli? Okay, I can switch it up to a food you hate. How about steamed spinach? 
I hated steamed spinach as a kid. How many of you are like, give me some more steamed spinach, yes, and your parent is offering you at dinner some steamed spinach, you're like, but most of the time you're probably like, nah, I don't want that. So what happens if you say, no, I don't want steamed spinach, instead, why don't you just give me a big bowl of chocolate syrup? Now, did you accept that offer of steamed spinach? No. You rejected that offer and counteroffered with a bowl of syrup. That's what the, do, the Jew did in John 6. They rejected his offer of a savior, a personal savior that would save them from their sins, and they counteroffered as a political messiah. What they wanted was a messiah that was going to overthrow Rome. So they fo- tried to force him. They said, we don't want that personal savior business. We, want, we, uh, we see you as messiah. You authenticate the, the claim as messiah. So we want you as Messiah and go overthrow Rome, by the way, because that's what Messiah is supposed to do. So they reject his offer, they give him a counteroffer, and so they have rejected him. So he goes out, in the next six months, we call that his private preparation period. So the next six months, he's going to take his disciples, and specifically the twelve apostles aside, to privately prepare them for the day that he is crucified. This, he changes his tactics at this point. So instead of teaching openly, he teaches in parables. The parables are there so that he can continue instructing his disciples without bringing in more condemnation from the Jewish leadership. So he begins teaching in parables. He begins going for, instead of traveling around in in Jewish territories, he begins going into Gentile territories. That's to get away from the Jewish crowd so he can privately prepare. And then he also stops doing miracles in public and starts doing miracles closed. Have you ever wondered why Jesus tells some people, okay, I'll heal you, but don't go tell anyone about it? Because the moment Jesus healed someone, then the crowds found out about it, he couldn't get alone. He was a uh, recognized folk hero. The crowds were driven to him because they wanted to be healed. They wanted to see him work his magic, right? That's what they thought. And so he changes tactics. This culminates in what I like to call the final exam. He has prepared his disciples, and he takes them aside, and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter passes with an A+. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Correct. And then he gives them the most terrible news. You're right, and I'm going to die. Could you imagine... You're a second temple Jew, a Jew that's been following Jesus. You've been waiting your whole life for Messiah. You've you've been oppressed by the Romans. You're waiting for this one Messiah that's going to overthrow the Romans and give Israel back their freedom. You've found him. He's in your lifetime. He's going to give you freedom. And then he tells you, by the way, that's not what I'm here for. Instead, I'm going to die. And so to encourage them, he takes them to the Mount of Transfiguration. And he transfigures into his glory before them. That's the close of the private preparation. The next six months are what we call a mixed focus. He's still going, uh, he's still trying to privately prepare his disciples because it's just so difficult for them to fathom his death. But at the same time, he's going to go into Judea and Perea and publicly present himself 
in those two areas. Now, Judea is where Jerusalem is. It's going to be an incredibly dangerous time in his ministry. But he goes, and he publicly presents himself. And then he goes into Perea, I should say. As he's in Judea, they try to kill him. And he goes to Perea. And while he's in Berea, they, they, he publicly presents himself, and they actually try to bring him back. And he out, outsmarts the Pharisees until he hears word that his friend Lazarus is, de- is dying. And he waits. He waits because he needs to show, once again, he needs to have a, a God-sized miracle to back up his God-sized claim. So he waits to ensure that Lazarus is dead. And then he says, let's go back. And we know how dangerous it is because Thomas says, well, I guess we should go with him so that we can die too. One thing I love about Thomas, you can say whatever you want about him, but he was faithful to Jesus. I mean, he he thought for sure they were going to die, but he was ready to go die with him. So he goes back and he goes to Bethany. Bethany is just two miles outside of Jerusalem. Those who want to see Jesus dead. Lazarus is so dead, he's stinking dead. What that means is, for the Jew, after the third day, you had to roll the tomb, you had to close the tomb, and no one could get back in because the, rot, the flesh would be rotten. And it would stink so horribly. That's the point of death that Lazarus was at. He wasn't just dead, he was stinking dead. Kind of reminds me of the Princess Bride, right? Like, he's only partially dead. No, he wasn't just partially dead. This guy was stinking dead. But Jesus raised him from the dead. And at that point, his name, oh, he was already a folk hero. His name grew all the more. And it set into the Sadducees and the Pharisees' hearts. They had been arguing with each other, and finally Jesus did something no one else could do. He united the Sadducees and Pharisees in their hate for him. And they had determined at that point, we will kill him. And so he travels back up through Samaria into the Jezreel Valley and and he waits. At that time, once again, there were more Galilean Jews than there were Jews in Judea. And it was Passover time. During Passover, you had to go to the temple. So he waits for all these crowds and crowds of pilgrims. And he starts to make the pilgrimage with them. And as he's making the pilgrimage with these thousands upon thousands, some estimate hundreds of thousands of Jews, he publicly presents himself again. And he publicly presents himself and he, he works miracles and signs and the, the excitement is gathering. All these Jews that are, that are making the pilgrimage with him, they're getting more and more excited because it is, they are sure Messiah has come. So he makes the pilgrim with them, and then he stops in Bethany to visit Lazarus again, while all of those who who were traveling with him carry on. This sets us up for the triumphal entry, because they know after the Sabbath, on Sunday, Jesus will enter, and they will greet him as their king, the Messiah. And that's where we catch up in Luke. We'll pick up in 35, and we'll only read to 40. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set it on. They set Jesus on it. So here he is riding the donkey. 
He knows what he's doing. He's presenting himself as the king coming in peace to make peace between God and man. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Luke is the only one that doesn't tell us about the, the palm branches, but if we read the other accounts, they'll tell us that they also got, if they didn't have cloaks, they gathered palm branches. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Well, he had been, just been traveling with them for two weeks. He had raised Lazarus from the dead just a few weeks ago. They had seen the God-sized works that back up his God-sized claim. And they were recognizing him as the Messiah. They saw the signs, they read the signs, they knew the signs. They were welcoming their Messiah. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name, in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're recognizing him as the Messiah. They're chanting this. They're singing this as the Messiah. They know. They've read the signs. They know exactly what they're doing here. And so do the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him. So they read the signs. They know what's happening. They know exactly what this means. And so they confront Jesus. And they said to him, Teacher, rebuke. This word rebuke means to denounce express strong disapproval. So what they're trying to say is, you need to denounce this. You can't be the Messiah. Don't let them believe that they're Messiah. They're celebrating you as Messiah, as King Jesus. Don't let them do it. And what does Jesus do? He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The crowd knows what Jesus is doing. He's presenting himself formally presenting himself as King Jesus, the Messiah. The Pharisees know what he's doing. He is formally presenting himself as King Jesus, the Messiah. Which, by the way, have you ever wondered why the crowd celebrates him on Sunday and by Friday they're yelling, crucify him? If you've ever wondered about that, come next Sunday and we'll talk a little bit about that. But they recognize him. The Pharisees recognize what he's doing. He's formally presenting himself as King Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He is formally presenting himself as King Jesus, the Messiah. So if everybody understands what's going on here, and the crowds greet him as who he is, why don't the Pharisees? Why do the Pharisees refuse to accept him as the Messiah? It wasn't a lack of signs. Surely they knew the signs. It wasn't because he didn't have the right timing. Surely they knew Daniel. Surely they knew the timing. There was no lack of confusion. They understood it. I should say there's, there was no confusion. They Surely they understood it. They understood exactly what was going on here. They weren't confused at all. Why did they refuse to accept him? And it was because of the rebellion in their own heart. Their disbelief wasn't due to, a, due to confusion. It was due to rebellion. Jesus had shown the signs. He had presented himself very clearly. The reason why they refused to believe was because of their own rebellion. So where are you at today? Jesus has made it clear. He has revealed himself 
clearly. The evidence is overwhelming. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion writes that none of the Gospel writers could have known Jesus. So they all just made it up. Could you imagine how that conversation would have gone? The four Gospel writers get together and say, hey, let's make this thing up. Okay, well, well, We'll need to write some proofs. Oh, that's okay. We'll just fake it all. Well, what about the people that were, that were actually in the city? Wouldn't they actually call us out? Don't worry about the people that would have been witnesses. We can just make it up and they won't argue with us. Well, well what about the, his disciples? Won't they be sad that Jesus died? And won't they call us out? Oh, we'll just make them believe. We'll make them believe unto death. We'll make them believe so much that they'll, they'll be willing to be tortured for this lie that they know is a lie. No one's willing to die for what they know is a lie. But what about us ourselves? And what's the purpose for it all? Oh, don't worry. It'll be fun to watch. We're not looking to make a profit. We won't even gain any influence or power in our lifetime. But, but it'll be funny. That just doesn't seem right, does it? They witnessed Jesus on earth. They witnessed his death. And the only thing that would compel them to write about his resurrection, to suffer the brutal death they would suffer for, being, for having a testimony to that resurrection, is if they actually witnessed it. So where are you at with Jesus? Are you still living in rebellion. He's made it clear who he is. He's made his claim clear. Are you still in rebellion? Or are you ready to accept him as King Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord of your life? Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us evidence, that you have made it clear that you can leave us with no doubt as to who you are. And we pray for our rebellious hearts as we shake our fist against you and say, Lord, we want to do it our way. We pray that you would soften our hearts to you, that we would finally give it up and say, Lord, you are our God. You are our King. And we submit our lives to you. In your name we pray. Amen.